You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Today, with special guest host, Tamara Cherry. Hello, everybody. Recognizing that most of our listeners are east of me, I will wish you a good afternoon first. And good morning if you are here in Saskatchewan with me or anywhere west of me. Thanks for joining us today. Is the great Canadian housing bubble pop upon us? What about the Toronto and Vancouver bubble pop we've heard being predicted for years and years? Well, it may be or not. Who knows? We're going to dive into it more in this show. Regular listeners will know I am a fan of real estate. My husband and I were lucky enough to get into the Toronto market about a dozen years ago when we bought our first condo. Every extra penny we saved went on to the mortgage, allowing us to buy our next home in Ajax, just outside of Toronto, and then two rental properties in Oshawa, just beyond Ajax. We've never made a lot of money selling our properties, certainly not compared to what some GTA home sellers have been making over the last year or two. But we could have, particularly on our rental properties, which likely would have sold last year for more than double the price of what we paid for them less than five years earlier. We've never been interested in selling, however, as we've always seen these as long-term investments and don't want to leave our tenants in a lurch. But I got to say, even though I know I shouldn't be bothered by this, even though I know we are not going to be selling these properties for a long, long time, if ever, we hope to just give them to our kids one day, news out of the GTA, Greater Toronto Area housing market of late has been a bit unsettling. Here's BNN's Andrew Bell. The economists at RBC is saying that we've gone from exuberance and joy in the Toronto, Vancouver markets, if you owned a home, Mm. to fear. A new report from RBC warns that a housing correction that has already led to four months straight of price declines in the GTA could end up becoming, quote, one of the deepest of the past half century. And of course, you could get into a situation where people are, are trying to get out. We haven't seen a scramble for people to get out, of their, mm-hmm. uh, get out of houses. For some perspective on what this could look like. In 1989 was the previous peak in houses and Toronto took, I think it was almost a decade to get back to where it had been in 1989. Now, we should note that the RBC prediction goes against a much rosier report from Royal LePage last month, which predicted that values would more or less hold for the rest of the year following some declines in the second quarter. Brendan Cowens is the vice president of sales at property.ca. Here he is on CTV News Toronto talking about the spike in real estate listings being pulled from the market. The spike is pretty tremendous. We're looking at from January till June, you know, in January, in terms of the relistings, we had around 380. And now the reported numbers of late of June is over 2,800. That's a spike of more than 600% when it comes to the number of listings that are being cancelled in Toronto. Cowan said we're seeing a shift toward a more balanced market. We do have some sellers, in fact many sellers I would say, especially when it comes talking about our brokerage here at property.ca, who still have our expectation of getting prices within Q1 of this year. So let's drill into that last clip a little bit. We're shifting towards more balanced market, but some sellers still expect to get the prices that their neighbors were getting at the beginning of the year. So what does a more balanced market look like? Well, let's take a look at a Toronto Star story that was published earlier this week as an example. The story by Olivia Bowden 
painted a picture of realtors in King Township, just outside Toronto, haggling with their home selling clients to be more flexible with their pricing and to stop comparing themselves to neighbors who sold at much higher prices earlier in the year. These numbers are going to sound a bit bonkers to many of you, I'm sure, but list, just, just listen to this. The average selling price in King Township has plummeted from $3.2 million in February to $1.6 million in July, a 48% drop in five months. Of course, inflation likely has a lot to do with this. The Bank of Canada has hiked the overnight lending rate by 225 basis points since March. RBC expects the Bank of Canada to add another 75 basis points by the fall. Speaking with Evan Solomon last month, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem said Canadians can be assured that inflation will come down. So let's say inflation comes down next year. What will that mean for the housing market? Who knows? Meanwhile, condo sales in Toronto are doing very well. Here's Brendan Cowens again. In terms of the sales, you know, the price per square foot uh, pricing is still up year over year. Um, in terms of the rentals, they are up even significantly more. So the rental uh, prices per square foot you'd get just over the last 14 days, of looking at the averages, is 14%. It is just, I mean, it's crazy to think back to the beginning beginning of the pandemic. As I said, you know, I'm a fan of real estate. My husband and I like, like to watch the real estate market. I, I, I don't know who could have predicted what would happen uh, to the housing market during the pandemic. And now, of course, what's happening now with house prices going down, not much of a surprise given the raising interest rates, but, but then you have condos that are, that are still going up, up, up and, and rental prices that are through the roof. So what's going on and what do you think about all this? Well, we'll be speaking with someone from the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board after the break. Then we will turn the phone lines over to you. Also today, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra has been summoned to appear before a House of Commons committee. This after the federal, as the federal federal government faces increased scrutiny for its response to flight delays and cancellations plaguing Pearson Airport just outside Toronto. Members of the Transport, Infrastructure and Communities Committee unanimously approved a motion yesterday calling on the minister to appear no later than August 22nd and to account for the widespread disruptions. The motion was introduced by Conservative MP and transportation critic Melissa Lansman, who said in a statement to the Star, the government has failed in their duty to manage Canadian airports effectively and efficiently. They have had months to deal with the challenges facing Canadians after ignoring the advanced warnings resulting in fewer screening agents, longer lineups, delays, and the international notoriety for being the worst. Well, we brought you the story yesterday of a man who, like so many others in the country, was hit with a last-minute flight cancellation due to, quote, crew constraints, only to be told that this would not qualify for compensation for Mayor Canada because it was a, quote, safety issue. Well, I asked Duncan D., former Chief Operating Officer for Air Canada, if this sort of rationale is reasonable on Air Canada's part. It's a situation that is absolutely aggravating for any traveler who faces this type of delay or cancellation. But clearly, airlines have to abide by passenger rights rules, which are enforced by the Canada Transportation Agency, which is a government agency. He said that right now, airlines are not required to provide compensation that is disrupted for situations outside their control. That means things like weather, government regulations, um, government failures. And in this case, what we've seen are tremendous government service failures at the airports, primarily at security, which is the responsibility of CATSA, 
And at international arrivals, which is the responsibility of the Canada Border Services Agency, CBSA. Now, to be completely honest with you, I was expecting Duncan D to come on the show yesterday and say that Air Canada was wrong, that they should be paying up. But he left me with some food for thought. And so in this case, when we're talking about safety-related crew constraints, that basically means crews are not, the airline is not able to simply tell crews to continue operating flight beyond their duty day. So a duty day is what the government says is a safe number of hours a crew can operate any given day. Now, Duncan D said the 60 flights every week are being held somewhere off the terminal waiting to be allowed to offload offload their customers because the customs hall is so full. So needless to say, I thought I knew what he was going to say going into the interview. He left me with some food for thought. Later in the show, we're going to break down the significance of Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra being called to testify on this issue. Lots of other things coming up as well. It's going to be a zinger of a show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Evan Solomon Show, where we tweet out audio and news from the show. And if you want to listen back to our show or catch an interview you may have missed, you can listen to the Evan Solomon Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to our show to keep up with all the latest news you need to know. Coming up after the break, we'll be speaking with Jason Mercer, Chief Market Analyst for the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. He's the expert on the GTA housing market. Then we're turning the phone lines over to you. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Solomon. This is the Evan Solomon Show with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, and thank you for joining us. We're going to be going to the phone lines in the next segment. So if you got some thoughts during this next interview, don't hold them to yourself. Give us a call at 1-855-633-1010 or send us a text message at 71010 and we will get to you straight away. Well, a new report from RBC warns that a housing correction that has already led to four months straight of price declines in the greater Toronto area could end up becoming, quote, one of the deepest of the past half a century. Joining us now to break this down is Jason Mercer, Chief Market Analyst for the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. He is the expert on the GTA housing market. Jason Mercer, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks very much for having me. So what is going on in Toronto? Does this all have to do with inflation numbers going up, Jason? Well, I mean, largely what we've seen, you know, really since March, April, um, has been the result of, of higher borrowing costs. I mean, if you think about the under, other fundamentals that, that underlie housing demand, we're seeing strong population growth, record levels, in fact, of population growth. We're seeing very low unemployment. So it would make sense that people are moving to Toronto and, and the surrounding greater Toronto area, and, and they need a place to live. The, the issue that's impacted uh, um, the demand for ownership housing over the last few months it has, been, has been borrowing costs. That's impacted people's monthly payment. The great majority of households purchase a home using a mortgage um, and, and so that that's impacted you know what that looks like vis-a-vis their their household balance sheet and so they've had to take a bit of a step back it's not to say that these households won't purchase a home in the future uh, but they're looking at their options especially you know options that will help mitigate um, the higher housing costs associated with with interest rates so it's you know am I going to purchase um, a, a less expensive home type like a townhouse or a condo instead of a detached house or am I going to look to a different part 
of the GTA or even broader Greater Golden Horseshoe. And that decision takes time uh, uh, to work through. And, and so we're, you know, we're definitely seeing fewer sales than we saw last year. We're seeing more balanced market conditions, and, and that's had an impact on pricing. Do you think that, uh, like, first of all, are, are we dealing with a housing bubble pop as, as has been predicted for years and years and years and years? Like, has, is it finally arriving here yet or is it is it too early to say? Well, I mean, if, if you look at, um, you know, where the average price was for the GTA uh, in, in July of 2022 versus 2021, we're still actually seeing, you know, that average selling price up. Uh, compared to last year, and it's the same set of circumstances if you look at it on a year-to-date basis. But it is true uh, that you know we, we were seeing an average selling price above 1.3 million dollars in February when the market was still extremely tight, um, and we've definitely come off that peak over the last uh, three to four months. And so while um, you know there's more choice out there for buyers, they have more negotiating power, and you've seen the average selling price trend lower month over month. Uh, we're still above where we were this time last year. Is this is this? I mean, we've been we, we've heard somebody say that this is balancing out the market. The balance, the market is becoming more balanced. Uh, you know, let let's say that next year, for example, inflation numbers come down. You know, Bank of Governor uh, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem has assured Canadians that inflation numbers will come down. Do you think that that would then be grossly reflected in housing prices going back up? Or is this, you know, what we're seeing now in some places, like we could talk about King Township, where, you know, I I referenced it at the beginning of the show that saw, uh, what was it, a 48% drop in prices just over a five-month period this year. Um, Will it be enough to to bring those numbers back up? Or or are we seeing a, a housing slump that could last, you know, a decade or so like it did in the late 80s? Sure. So a couple points there to, to unpack. I guess, you know, first and foremost, if you think about pricing over time, uh, it's a function of, of, of demand and supply. Uh, so right now we've seen sales, a, a good proxy for demand, uh, um, that's dropped relative to the inventory of homes available. And so again, uh, home buyers have, have benefited from more choice and, and, and more negotiating power when it comes to price. Usually when, you know, if we look at past interest rate tightening cycles, usually what happens is you see, you know, sales drop off first because that's that sort of immediate impact of people having to step back and sort of, you know, reassess their situation. But what happens is you also see listings follow suit as well over time. And I think it's even Mm -hmm. more so the case looking forward uh, now because, again, you know, the great majority of people – uh, who want to work are working right now. We're seeing unemployment levels that we haven't seen since the 1970s. And so you have households that were saying, look, I'm going to sell my home and, and get into something different, but now maybe aren't realizing the price uh, that they thought they were going to. Those individuals, a lot of them don't have to sell their home. They're, they're gainfully employed. They're seeing their wages and salaries go up. And so they may just take their home off the market and say, look, I'm going to wait to see how things shake out. Um, and, and so I'm not going to have my home available for sale. And so what we'll likely see over the next half year or so, and definitely into 2023, is we'll start to see listings start to follow that sales trend. And that eventually will provide some support for price because the market will actually tighten up. Uh, uh, versus, mm. you know, where we are uh, uh, right now. Now, the King City example that you referenced, I always caution people. I mean, we're talking about uh, a municipality that, you know, whether we're talking about this year or last year, we're talking about, you know, less than 100 sales, less than 50 sales, I think, in the example mm-hmm. uh, that was given. Yeah, I think know, it was like 20 or 30. 
yeah, versus you know five thousand sales on, on on net for for the GTA. And so when you're getting down to that sort of level of geography and that number of sales, you can, there's a lot of things that that that, they, that impact price. It's not just market conditions. It's not just interest rates. It's also the mix of homes that you're selling from one year to the next. So I always caution on using you know a small sample size like that as a as a proxy for overall market conditions. Okay, that's that's a really interesting perspective that I hadn't considered because when I think of King, King Township and and anybody who's listening from outside of the GTA or, or has never been to King Township, it is you know like there's there's rolling hills, it's beautiful, uh, lots of huge just sprawling properties. But I guess it is it is good to remember that perhaps not every property there that is that is being bought and sold is uh you know a three point two million dollar home or now $1.6 million home. There could be other numbers that would be bringing that down. Okay. So what would your advice be to people who are looking to sell their home? You know, I know you said that there's a lot of people that don't have to move, so they might just be holding on to it. But what about people that are thinking, you know what, I, I we're planning on moving within the next year. My job is moving me or whatever. What should I be doing? Should I be holding out for six months? Should I be selling now? Would you have advice to to offer up to those sorts of people? And and likewise to people who are who are hoping to buy a property, should they be doing it now or should they be waiting another six months or a year to see what happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I always stop short of giving sort of broad-based advice because everyone's financial and household and employment and family situation um, is, is, is different. But, you know, mm-hmm. certainly in, in the short term, I mean, market conditions are going to be more balanced than what we're used to, say, in, uh, you know, the, the latter half of 2020 and certainly all the way through uh, 2021. But if you think of the greater Toronto area and even broader greater Golden Horseshoe and ask yourself, well, do I expect to see strong population growth in uh, coming to this part of the region um, over, say, the next decade? I think the answer is yes. I mean, we have a lot to offer um, in terms of our, our, our social uh, diversity. We have a lot to offer in terms of our economic and, and job diversity, and that serves to attract people from all around the world. And, and those people are going to require a place to live. Some of them will choose to rent, but ultimately a lot of people are going to choose to purchase a home. And so, you know, the long-term demand for housing um, in, in the GTA, a broader GGH will remain strong. And that's one of the reasons in, in all of our releases where we've been tackling the impact of, of higher borrowing costs. We've also made the point, you know, policymakers, they don't want to take their, their, their eye off the supply issue because we haven't built enough homes over the last 10 years. And while we're seeing a bit of a lull in the market now, we're going to see the population continue to grow. We're going to see market conditions eventually tighten up. Let's try to make sure. Um, you know, that, that we're producing the right number of homes. That goes for ownership housing, but it also goes for rental. And, and one of the impacts of, of, uh, of, of a bit of a, a lull in the ownership side is we've seen a real tightening in the rental market. We released a couple of weeks ago our rental market report. We're seeing double-digit growth now in average condominium apartment rents in the GTA, and that's because some people have taken that step back. They've decided to rent in the shorter term rather than buy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we will leave it at that just because we're coming up against the break, but lots of excellent insight there. Thank you, Jason, for the time. That's Jason Mercer, Chief Market Analyst for the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. He is the expert on the GTA housing market. Now I want to hear from you. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. Send us a text message at 71010. What do you think about what's happening in the housing market? Are you worried? Are you you know, feeling just as confident as you were a year ago? Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. I'm Tamara Cherry, in for Evan Salt. Talk to you in a few minutes.
Brandon Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I want to turn over the phone lines and text messages to you. Give us a call, 1-855-633-1010. Send us a text message, as always, at 71010. A report from RBC on the housing correction we've seen over the last few months has us talking real estate. And I want to hear from you. If you're a homeowner in the Toronto or Vancouver areas, are you hitting pause on your home sale? If you're hunting for a house, even amidst the high lending prices, has this report given you hope? Here's BNN's Andrew Bell. The economists at RBC is saying that we've gone from exuberance and joy in the Toronto-Vancouver markets, if you owned a home, Mm. to fear. The new report from RBC warns that a housing correction that has already led to four months straight of price declines in the greater Toronto area could end up becoming, quote, one of the deepest of the past half a century. And of course, you could get into a situation where people are trying to get out. We haven't seen a scramble for people to get out of their Mm -hmm. uh, get out of houses. Are you trying to get out of your house? If so, give me a call. Let me know for some perspective on what this could look like. In 1989 was the previous peak in houses and Toronto took, I think it was almost a decade to get back to where it had been in 1989. So again, give us a call 1-855-633-1010. I want to hear how you are feeling about what is going on in the uh, housing market these days. Just before the break, we were speaking uh, with GTA housing expert, Jason Mercer. He's the chief market analyst for the Toronto Regional Real Estate Board. And and Jason was telling us, you know, you you can't read too much into some of the numbers that we've been seeing. So for example, a little bit earlier on in the show, I was referencing a Toronto Star story uh, that was talking about price declines in housing in King Township. And for anybody who is not familiar with the area, uh, King Township, or King City, as some refer to it, uh, is just northwest of Toronto, has a lot of uh, very high-valued homes. And according to the Toronto Star story, over the last five months, uh, the the price of homes there have dropped from $3.2 million, a little more than $3.2 million in February, to a little bit more than $1.6 million in July, representing a 48% price drop in five months. But of of course, Jason Mercer was was warning us, you know, you can't read too far into this. This does not represent a very large swath of homes that are being sold. We're not talking about, you know, the average price uh, given, you know, thousands of home sales. We're talking about, uh, you know, 20 or 30 home sales. So uh, you can't really read into it too in-depth, I guess, unless you get into the weeds and and you know what you're talking about more. Let's go to Michael in Montreal. Michael, how are you feeling about the housing market these days? Oh, do we have Michael? The only way that they can afford... Uh, Sorry, Michael, Michael, sorry, you were were cut out at the beginning there. Just go ahead again from the beginning, Michael. Well, the average family feels like they've frozen out of the market to buy in now. But there's a way that they could do it. The federal and provincial government permits the owner to apply the interest payments on the first 600000 of a mortgage from their income taxes. Now the bank will lower the down payment to pass the stress test. They'll have money to maintain the house thereafter. Uh, and on the other hand, those speculators, foreign and domestic, that are pushing the prices up, they should have to pay a 10% premium, and that money should go to support social and affordable housing 
in the municipality in which they bought it. This is what we're coming to. Otherwise, permit homeowners to deduct all the expenses and pay a capital gains tax when selling. Do you, Michael, do you do you really think that that would ever happen, though, Get the 10 percent tax on on housing investors, people that are buying homes but not living in yes, them? I mean, it's, it's such a political issue. They will still buy because they can deduct all the expenses. It's too difficult for the average family. It's got to be done now. Trudeau, get the ball rolling. All right, Michael in Montreal, thanks for calling in. Let's go over to Peterborough now. Sean, uh, what's your experience been uh, of late in the housing market? Yeah, so, you know, my dad passed away in June last year. I'm the executor, and uh, we um, had to put the house up on the, on the market. Finally closed it uh, at the end of uh, July, but uh, I just want to sort of echo what the, one of the other commentators had said uh, earlier about, you know, don't expect what other people have got um, in a few months previously. And we had actually missed that uh, that crest, and we were lucky mm-hmm. to get at 550. Uh, I mean, you know, the, it's a race to the bottom at this point. So I just want to say that real estate agents, yeah, our real estate agent told us exactly that, and we had to adjust our expectations. So, we're, Sean, we're, what were your ex? You said you sold it for five fifty. Is that right? Yeah. So our expectations were, you know, I, I kind of researched the neighborhood, and it was like, you know, six hundred. I figured, you know, five fifty was kind of right in the middle of, of where all the other prices were. But we were kind of really hoping to get six fifty or seven hundred or something like that. And, and the agent said, No, 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 <laughs> you're not getting that. And because no one else was getting it, and, and consequently, other houses were sitting on the market for more than forty days. So we, oh, wow. we luckily got an offer five fifty. Took it. We we just took it. Did you did you list it for five fifty, Sean? Five ninety nine nine hundred. So okay. uh, I felt that five fifty was like right in in the zone it's like you know that's it i'm I'm pulling the trigger so yes Hmm. yeah exactly and and how many days was it on the market before you got that offer not not very long about 20 days okay so we you know we we know what but 20 days would have been considered a long time a year ago i'm I'm not i'm not i'm not so familiar with the peterborough market but i have heard heard about some of the stuff that was going on there and it was pretty hot over the last couple years right a lot of investors uh picking up properties over there so yeah right all right right yeah go ahead ahead. where my dad lives it it sold for seven hundred thousand, like just a few months earlier so that was you know but that wasn't our baseline i mean we'd like yeah we'd like to get that kind of money but you know uh we were told no don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Good lesson for anybody else looking to sell their uh, home right now. Thanks a lot, Sean. Sean was calling thank from you. Peterborough. Yeah, you too. Thank you. If, if you'd uh, like to contribute to this conversation, you can give us a call at one 1010 We've just got a couple of minutes left before the break. I'm going to go to some of the texts that we have coming in. Uh, one text talk or Jack texting in about the housing bubble bubble saying that it was way overvalued in 2021, even low square footage condos. So hopefully more realistic pricing. Well, that's, it's an interesting comment, Jack, because uh, yeah, even low square footage condos, who ever thought that those would be overvalued in 2021, still in the midst of the pandemic, when so many people were were moving out of, you know, city centers like Toronto. But, you know, we were hearing from another housing expert earlier on in the show who had been speaking with CTV News Toronto um, and who was saying that, you know, 
condo prices are still sky high and, and not just condo prices, you know, price of selling, but if you're wanting to rent one of these places, rental prices are still very high. It's still not an affordable place to live in Toronto. Uh, another person saying that, uh, wanting our last, our last guest in the last segment to get real, the market was a speculative froth. This froth, this person saying higher interest rates are taking this demand out of the market. Uh, another person texting in that only the millennials are worried. Why? Because they've only witnessed a straight upward market trajectory and can't fathom that a market can actually go down. Paul, you're calling from Toronto. We've just got uh, less than a minute left. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah, the uh, it's been very well documented. Um, just about foreign investors uh, driving up the market. They are they are representative of 19 percent of the owners and have driven up the prices approximately. 41%. They continue to launder their money in Canada, and that is what we have become known for internationally. It's not going to stop. It's, it's a joke. So you don't, you don't see this actually as a housing bubble pop, potentially? You, you see the prices staying high? Uh, we, we, we can't even get people to work in our hospitals. I mean, our government, I mean, is so dysfunctional, and we are so passive and foolish in this country to accept it. Uh, they, they need they need to triple the levels of immigration. Where are all these people going to go? And, and okay. by the way, Paul, now, Paul in Toronto, I, I got to end it there just because we're coming up against the break. But I thank you for your call and thank you everybody who called and texted in lots of text messages that I could not get to. Coming up after the break, we are going to be heading to Parliament Hill, speaking with journalist and CTV National News uh, reporter Mackenzie Gray, who covers Parliament Hill, speaking about Minister of Transportation Omar Al-Gabra, who is set to testify before the end of the month to explain airport delays and flight cancellations in Canada's major airports. Welcome back to The Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Have you heard about the problems at the airports over the last few months? No, you probably haven't heard anything about flights being delayed or being canceled or people not being able to find their bags for hours and hours of days or even weeks on end. That has not been an issue at all. Of course, if you cannot... uh, detect the dripping sarcasm in my voice, then perhaps the next guest will be able to fill us in a little bit more and why a new development on Parliament Hill is significant for this story. Mackenzie Gray is the CTV national news reporter covering Parliament Hill. Mackenzie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, Tamara. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm good. Thanks. Okay. So Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra is set to testify before the end of the month, before August 19th, in fact, to explain airport delays and flight cancellations in Canada's major airports in recent months. Can you just walk us through how we got to this point? So yesterday there was essentially roughly an emergency meeting of the Transportation Committee where uh, the opposition members essentially called for a meeting. There was one and they voted to do a study into looking into why there have been so many issues at the airport. And so the first person who's going to be appearing, we're not sure the exact date, but in the next week or so will be Omar Al-Gabba, the transportation minister. And then I would expect the committee will call other witnesses. You know, people I would expect to see are the executives from Air Canada, WestJet and Porter to talk about, you know, why they haven't been able to hire people quick enough and why we've seen so many delays on their end too as well. So it'll start with Omar Al-Gabra. 
you know, we haven't heard from him in a little bit. You know, he hasn't been doing as many media veils of the summer. Generally, things are a little bit more quiet. Um, so I'll be interested to hear if there's anything new that the government can say as to what they're doing to try and deal with the backlog at the airports. At least anecdotally, the people that they've been hiring, both from the CBSA side and the CATSA side, the people who work in security, you know, checking your bags, you have to take your belt off, take your shoes off to go to the conveyor belt. You know, we've seen at the airports that there have been more people there. But when you look at Pearson in particular, we're still having those surge problems where at large points of the day where there's kind of a bottleneck effect where there are too many people in there for the number of people who are working security to be able to handle things. So I'm interested to see what Omar al-Gabra can say the government's doing to be able to handle that. But I'm also interested to look at the tone too, Tamara. You know, this is a big issue that the conservatives have been trying to capitalize on. I would expect that Melissa Lanceman, conservative MP, who's one of the co-chairs of the committee, will be going after Mr. Algabra hard in those committee hearings when he shows up. Yeah, you know, you, you pointed out that we haven't heard from uh, Minister Algabra a lot since all of this started kind of unfolding a few months ago. The, the And when we did hear from him, his comments were not very well received, if I remember correctly. He was, he of some of what he was saying was, you know, talking about what you said, you know, hiring more CATSA agents, uh, CBSD, focusing on those areas, but also sort of saying, you know what, travelers need to kind of be trained into how to get through airport security lines again. And I think there was a lot of eye rolling when it came to that, because people who were going to airports could see that there were, you know, two security lines open out of like eight or 10 or however many. And when I say people, I'm referring to myself flying through Pearson a few months ago, Mackenzie. Uh, so we'll, it will be interesting to see if his tone has changed. Tell us about uh, Melissa Lansman because she is the transportation critic and she's the one that actually uh, brought forward this motion to have Minister Algabra testify before the committee. Can you tell us a little bit more about what she said about why she, I mean, is this just politicking or is there, is there some real, uh, weight behind what she was saying? Well, it's a combination of both. Obviously, for the Conservatives, this is an issue that uh, plays well. You know, I I think back to the pandemic, you know, there were different things, you know, when we're in the midst of it, when there were lockdowns going on, there were different things that everyone wanted to do, uh, you know, once we got to the other side. And I think for a lot of people, travel was one of those things. And and for many people, you know, in this summer was really going to be the first opportunity where they felt comfortable and in some cases uh, being able to fly to, let's say, go to Europe to see family or take a vacation and travel. And now for lots of people, they've had many issues going through that process. Uh, So, you know, there is a a real, uh, you know, interest, a public interest in getting to the bottom of this to solve this issue from both, you know, a personal and an economic perspective for Canada. But there's also certainly a political side to this, too, where the Conservatives are going to want to try to tie the fact that there are these airport issues to the Liberals specifically. And look, the tone is going to be shifting now, too. There's going to be a new Conservative leader coming in. It's likely going to be Pierre Polyev. He's been the person who's also been pushing on this hard as well. I would expect that the tone that we're going to see at this committee whenever Mr. Ogaba shows up in the next little bit will be the tone that carries us in to when the House of Commons comes back in September. And and I mean, when we're thinking about what Pierre Poilievre's tone would be on this, I can only assume that it's going after the executives at, at Air Canada, WestJet, that sort of thing. Is that fair? Well, I think he'll be trying to put the blame on, on Omar Al-Gabra and the government and try to make this Mr. Trudeau's fault. You know, we've heard from Mr. Right. Al-Gabra saying, look, you know, we didn't have enough people hired at CATSA and CBSA. We've rectified that. We're now, in particular at the CATSA agents, the, the ones who check your bags when you're going through security on the first end, we're now at pre-pandemic levels. And we're not at pre-pandemic levels in terms of flights. So what's the give there? You know, the argument we've heard from the government has been that, in particular at Pearson, there's kind of scheduling problems that are bulking planes up where they're all kind of coming in at one point in time. And for people who aren't living in Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver, for folks like us here in Ottawa, 
we recognize that the same number of flights that go to different cities just don't come to Ottawa anymore. If you want to fly to different parts of the country or fly to the States, as an example, you almost certainly have to fly to Toronto to then go to a secondary destination. So we're really going back to a hub model, and when we've spoken to experts about that, that's the model that the airlines are trying to take right now. They're trying to get as many bums in the seats as they can with as fewer planes as possible to try to get back to profitability. We saw our Canada with numbers. They lost $400 million last quarter. So they want to be profitable again like they were before the pandemic. And the way they think they can do that is by flying through Pearson, through Vancouver, through Montreal in this kind of hub model instead of going back to individual cities like they were doing more before the pandemic, which has led to these bottlenecks. The government wants to see that fixed, and I think that's something that we're going to hear from Omar Gabra at the Transportation Committee when he appears uh, likely next week. Do you, do you think we'll hear from him before that committee appearance, uh, Mackenzie? Maybe. Uh, you know, the one thing I would say is while the House of Commons was sitting and this was kind of, you know, uh, the issue was first unfolding, you know, I would give him credit that he was routinely uh, willing to talk to the media, at least. And he was regularly in the House of Commons. Uh, you know, sometimes his answers uh, weren't satisfactory. They might not line up. And certainly the opposition weren't pleased with what he was saying. Uh, you know, I would note it's it's usually fairly quiet right now. Uh, but, you know, these these summer committee hearings like we've seen uh, with Hockey Canada, like with the RCMP, um, you know, they do get a lot of uh, attention. And, and as this issue mm-hmm. should, you know, for a lot of people, you know, they spend a lot of money to be able to uh, go on these trips and go on vacation uh, and, and they want answers. You know, and one other thing, Tamara, that you know, I'm looking for at this committee, too. You know, we've seen stories about Air Canada, and I know that many of the airlines have been doing this, uh, trying to skirt around the Air Passenger Bill of Rights, which the Liberals brought in in their first mandate, which kind of mandates that uh, if your flight's delayed for a certain number of hours, you can get up to $1,000 if you're on Air Canada and your flight's delayed for an extended period of time. But there's a big loophole in that Air Passenger Bill of Rights, Mm -hmm. which says that if your flight's delayed for safety and the airlines are the ones who make the determination on what your flight's delayed for, you don't get any compensation. And we've seen now from Air Canada that they're saying that when they don't have enough staff, whether it be through COVID or through other reasons, they're claiming that it's safety to make sure Mm -hmm. that they're not paying Canadians for this. And I would expect that that issue comes up at committee, in particular from the NDP, who've been pushing the government to kind of close some of these loopholes in this. So Canadians who have their vacations delayed for extended periods of time actually get some compensation from the airlines, whether it's for safety or for other issues. Well, it's interesting. And I, I have to end it here, uh, Mackenzie, but I'll just point out we were, we were speaking about that a little bit earlier on the show and yesterday. And when we had Duncan Dion, who was the former chief operating officer at Air Canada uh, with us yesterday, he he was pointing the finger at the government saying basically the airlines cannot operate properly if the government is putting them in a position where they can't, for example, unload in a reasonable uh, amount of time because of backups at CBSA. Anyway, I'll end it there. Thank you very much, Mackenzie Gray. Coming up after the break, if you could attend your own funeral before you died would you that's exactly what an ontario man did this is a beautiful story we're going to be speaking with his family coming up after the break you're listening to the iHeartRadio talk network and this is the evan solomon show today with special guest host tamara cherry As someone who spent her journalism career uh, on the crime beat, the trauma beat, I have told my fair share of very sad stories. And of course, uh, anybody that knows what I do outside of radio knows that I do a lot of work in trauma on a day-to-day basis. Well, this next story, it is 
a sad story, but it is also, it just, it filled my heart right up reading it last night. Right now I'm, I'm looking at the smiling face on the Toronto Sun website of Ron Rader. Ron was 67 years old when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in late May. In mid-June, he learned that his cancer had spread and that it was inoperable. To talk about what unfolded next are Ron's wife of 44 years, Shirley Rader, Ron's daughter, Jenna McBride, and Ron's son, Ben Rader. And I understand that Shirley and Jenna, we've reached you both in Exeter, Ontario, and Ben is in Cambridge. Thank you all for joining us today to talk about uh, Ron. So let's, Thank you. let's let's just start out first. My, my condolences, of course, for your loss. Uh, But again, thank you for sharing the story because it is such a beautiful one. Let's start with you, Jenna. Uh, Pick up the story after after your dad realized or or was informed in mid-June that his cancer had spread and it was inoperable. What was his reaction to this? Um, Obviously, you know, at first, complete shock, right? I think all of us were um, shocked by the news as we were kind of thinking, uh, you know, originally it was maybe just an ulcer. Um, (laughs) Obviously, Mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. So we learned that it was inoperable. And um, my dad's kind of first reaction, um, you know, he was walking down the hall with my mom and he turned to her and said, you know, I'm going to have a party. Um, And then not too long after, my brother and I were down there and he said, told us I'm having a party and he just, uh, you know, to take such news, um, and, and turn it into something good was, uh, pretty, pretty awesome to, you know, see that, um, we didn't expect any less from him. He's very social and he's always up for a good time. And he just said, you know, um, I'm not going to wait until I'm gone. You know, if people are going to come, you know, celebrate me. I want to be there. I'm not going to miss out on that. (laughs) So (laughs) that's, that's what we did. Shirley, this is a man you were married to for 44 years. That's incredible. I mean, your daughter just touched on this, but if you could just expand on it, was it, was it a surprise for you or was this very much in step with the Ron that you knew for more than four decades? Life was never dull with Ron Rader in my world. Um, (laughs) We, uh, yeah, we were always up for adventures and he was usually the leader and uh, yeah, we always had lots and lots of fun and, this did not surprise me at all because he loves people and he doesn't want to miss out on anything. So the minute he said that, I went, we will honor whatever you want. We're going to do it. Mm. Ben, yeah. where, did, where did it go from there? You, you guys knew, obviously, that you didn't have a lot of time to, to put together a party. So what happened next? Um, yeah, we sort of talked to him and uh, we kind of decided pretty much right away that we didn't want to be worried with planning it. Um, so we went to the funeral home, uh, Haskett's, and they basically said, yeah, we've never done this, but you know what? We can do it. It sounds like a challenge. And, uh, and then they took care of everything. So um, we basically just had to make sure that dad was in still good health, good enough to do it. And we kind of waited sort of to the last minute to send out invites to make sure he was good. And uh, the funeral home had everything set up and ready to go. I, I was going to say, I mean, usually what uh, funeral homes are obviously used to to putting together events, but only after the person has passed away. And, and and usually when that happens, people are become aware of this sort of thing through an obituary, but that wouldn't have been the case here. So uh, Jenna, what, what, what was that message that you were sending out to people? Because there were more than 350 people that showed up. So word obviously spread, but that last minute message that you put out, what, what was the, what was the context of that? 
Well, that was one of one of the things that uh, Colin and Haskett said, you know, um, we're going to have to rethink our website if, you know, <laughs> this is what we're going to be doing going forward. And so he said, you know, we're, we're going to place this announcement on the obituaries. Um, so what he did is he, he put the announcement on there, um, but he wrote the very much alive Ron Rader and then mm. put all of the details of the party that were, were to come. Um, and then, you know, that kind of got people obviously talking. Um, we did have a, a few people who kind of panicked and thought that he had actually gone and he said, no, 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 read it. <laughs> and uh, then they, <laughs> they realized, okay, yes. Um, so yeah, it uh, went up on, on Haskett's and uh, it was about a, uh, a week before um, the announcement went up and then he's just so connected with people that people got talking and, and mm. then we had such a wonderful turnout. Shirley, I, I forgive me for making assumptions, but I can't help but think that the last time you must have had something like this would have been would have been your wedding, like where all where all the attention was on Ron, or and maybe you guys have renewed your <laughs> vows or something. But tell tell me about that day. What what was that day like? It, it was July twenty third, I believe, right? Yes, it was. Um, we had wonderful support from the palliative team. Um, they made sure that he was hydrated and. And lots of energy. And I think between that and the adrenaline that he was running on, um, he was just stoked. He was keen and, and, uh, he was hooked up to an IV to keep him hydrated. And he was looking out the bedroom window, barking orders out. We figured the steroids maybe had a little bit to do with that and, uh, <laughs> making sure everybody was doing their job. And, and I'll tell you, he was so happy. He was just so happy. And, in the closet trying to figure out what he was going to wear because it uh, was supposed to be casual. And um, yeah, it, he was just thrilled that, and when things started happening and he was dragging me out the door saying, come on, they're coming. They're all here. We've got to get out there and sit under the tree. So yeah, it was, it was just a wonderful, wonderful day. And he never stopped smiling from the time we walked out until the last person had given a hug. It was uh just everything he wanted. He said he couldn't have written a better script. Oh, I, I got to yeah. say just about that smile. Again, I'm looking at another picture of, of your Ron right now. And I don't know if that's his grandkids or his grandson sitting on his lap. It looks like he's sitting in a golf cart, but oh, like it, it that brings me so much joy looking at that smile. So uh, tell me, tell me a little bit of more, uh, more about that then Shirley, you guys were, you spent the day you're sitting under the tree. What sorts mm-hmm. of things were people coming up and, and saying to Ron? Oh, well, we had everyone from family to customers that have been dealing with him for 35 years. Uh, We had, and just reminiscing about the first time that they bought a vehicle from him and and how he helped them and made them feel so comfortable and, and trusted him. And then we had families that had all kinds of stories about little mischievous events that, uh, he usually initiated or, um, he was involved in and um, friends and hockey team members and there were lots of tears as well but they were happy tears and and that's what he wanted he just wanted to uh, to reminisce and have a chance to say goodbye basically is what he says <laughs> mm-hmm. so lots and lots of great great memories and uh, between everybody so that's good. Ben, 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 Jenna, I, we just got a minute left and then we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back, but maybe I'll go to you first, Ben. Ben, what was it like watching, watching your dad receive all of these people sharing their love with him that day? 
Um, it was great. And it was honestly pretty much exactly what I expected. Um, I know how well connected he is. I know how much people love him. Um, he's always smiling, always happy. Not, nobody has a bad word to say. So to see him sort of receive those accolades and again, because he could do it. Um, it's like you said in his, the words he said at the event, you know, he, he couldn't say anything from a pine box. So he was happy to, to receive that and to talk to people. So it was, it was good just to see his sort of a, a lifetime um, rewarded. This is, this is just, this is so beautiful. And I can hear the pain in your voices, but it, I, I just want you to, to know like how much joy this is no doubt bringing to so many people and probably heartache for people that have experienced their own losses uh, recently as well. I want to pick this up after the break. So we're just coming up against the, the traffic break now, but I also want to extend this to members of our audience. You know, maybe some, maybe this is spurring some emotions for you and, and you'd like to share how you, you honor your loved ones after they have passed and, and we'll try to get to some of your calls after the break. So just hold on to those thoughts. Uh, but if, if Jenna and Shirley and Ben, if you guys are good to hang on for just a few more minutes, we're going to come back after the break. Is that okay with you three? Sounds yep, good. Okay. We're speaking with, with Shirley. Uh, we're speaking with Shirley Rader, Ron uh, Rader's wife of 44 years, Jenna McBride, his daughter, and his son, Ben Rader, who is in Cambridge. We're, we have lots more of this conversation coming up after the break. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. Filling in for Evan, it's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And we're continuing my conversation with the family of 67-year-old Ron Rader, who was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in late May. And then just a couple of weeks later, he learned that his cancer had spread and that it was inoperable, that he was in uh, palliative, uh, the palliative stage. Um, we are joined by Ron's wife, Shirley, by his daughter, Jenna, and by his son, Ben. And what makes this story so heartwarming is that Ron decided after he found out that he didn't have much time left on this earth, that he wanted to be there for his own funeral. So before the break, we were talking about the the, the celebration of life that was held on July 23rd, during which uh, Ron and, and Shirley sat underneath a tree and uh, 350 guests, more than 350 guests showed up uh, to pay their respects to Ron himself before he had had even passed. So let's pick up on that. Uh, Shirley, you were just telling me during the break that that Ron did some sort of tribute during the celebration of his life. Tell me, Tell me about what he said. Um, so he thanked everyone obviously for coming out and, and he said everyone made his day. Um, and he said that things like getting together might be a bit awkward for some because it's not traditional, but he said, you all know, I like to talk and I know that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't uh, here physically. So he thought maybe he'd start a new trend. He covered mm-hmm. some of his, um, background. Um, he's a Zurich boy. So he, touched on his years in there and the hockey and um, a few of his um, bosses that he's worked for um, over the years. And then of course uh, spoke about the family um, and all of it. So, and what's going to happen down the road, he apparently is going to haunt us. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) He had a sense of humor, didn't he? (laughs) Oh yes. Oh yes. (laughs) Now, Jenna, I understand that uh, in addition to the celebration of life, there's one more thing that that Ron, your dad, really wanted to do, and he wanted to go to the beach. Tell me about that. 
Yeah. So my uh, uh, cousin, his niece um, has uh, property uh, with her husband and, and another friend and it's right um, on the beach. It's like an old campground. And my dad was so excited about this property and he really wanted to take us all there, go to the beach you know, spend a bit of time there. And so we were able to do that. We, uh, um, well, it was a week ago last Friday, we packed up with uh, a few friends, um, some family members, we met my cousin there with her family. And we just spent, you know, it it wasn't a long time, because he didn't have the stamina, but we were there for probably an hour and a half and um, Mm -hmm. able to just enjoy the beach, the beach, he just loved it there. So um yeah, that's what we kind of, that was one of the last things on his bucket list. And mm-hmm. uh, he got done that. And then it was shortly after uh, that thing started, you know, not going too well for him. And he always had said quality over quantity and the quality was was fading very quickly. Mm-hmm. And and I understand again just from our conversation off air that at, at the end of the of, at the end of June he had had a couple of medical assessments to be part of the uh, medical medical assistance in dying program. Uh, maybe just pick it up there, Shirley. You know things weren't going well. He he mm-hmm. like like your daughter just said, quality over quantity. So where did the conversation go from there in, in terms of the medically assisted dying? Well, we um, we'd had the talk before he was even diagnosed, we'd always talked about uh, using uh, the medical assistance in dying if it came to that point. So it wasn't a surprise when he asked to put it in place. And uh, yeah, Monday, he had started to uh, just slip a little bit more tired, just a few other symptoms, no pain, but just the quality was just not what he wanted and spending more time in bed and not being able to enjoy things. And uh, so Monday morning, I, he just said to me, I'm just dreading one more night. I think this is the day I'm going to make the phone call. And he did. And we all honored him. It uh, it was sad, but it's what he wanted. And uh, we made a phone call. And uh, very shortly after that, um, we were given the privilege of being with him um, as he died with dignity. Mm. Ben, uh, I, I imagine just so many different emotions over the last few, few weeks, few months, really a couple months. Um, what would you like people to remember about your dad? Because he certainly made a splash on his way out, but I know he must've been so much more as you were growing up. Um, yeah, just, just big heart, big smile, big laughs, always whistling. Um, yeah, again, just nobody could say a bad thing about him. Um, and I, I think that's how everyone will remember him. Um, always joking, even even up to the end as he was, you know, getting ready for his last moments. He's still joking around and said, "Okay, guys, no crying, don't be sad. You know, go go celebrate, go have a party tonight." So hmm. um, that that was him. Hmm. Shirley, uh, anything else you'd like people to know about your husband? Oh, how do I ever start and, and compile you know, 40, 44 yeah. years? I know I've given you quite yes. the task. Yes. And uh, just so, just so loving and just a family man with a mischievous sense of humor and always saw the good in any situation. Um, he was just definitely our go-to guy for everything. That's going to be our challenge for going forward is because he, he was who we went to when when we needed anything. Um, yeah, just it was just um, just a privilege to be part of his life and just a supportive uh, person that loved 
life, loved family. Um, I, yeah, how do I begin? <laughs> Je- Jenna, do you think that your dad is grinning ear to ear right now listening to this conversation? How do you think he'd react to all this attention <laughs> that everything's getting now? Absolutely. He would be loving this. Um, and, and more for the fact that, um, you know, his, his positivity, his story, his courage, um, is affecting so many people and maybe getting people thinking about doing things differently. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. that's what he would, he would like, uh, he was always one that, you know, veered off the beaten track, um, or beaten path. He never, you know, tell, tell him to do something one way and he would do it the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's always wanting people to kind of think outside the box. And so, uh, he would be loving (laughs) attention Mm -hmm. and and the fact that people are talking and possibly you know thinking about their own lives and you know how they might do things differently and and maybe he will he's also thinking just because you mentioned the haunting bit a little bit earlier oh shoot I really (laughs) got to get on that (laughs) Shirley you had had mentioned to me earlier uh when we were just chatting off air that that you were looking out the window uh, of your home Mm -hmm. into the space you got into your backyard where this final celebration of his life was held I I know that obviously there's a lot of sadness that comes with the last few months when you're thinking about it but do you think that that backyard now is going to bring a different kind of peace for you a, a different sort of joy thinking about all the the nice things that happened that day that in that party that your husband so dearly wanted absolutely just knowing it was what he wanted and that he had the chance to talk to the people that meant so much to him um definitely when we sit here looking out or sit in the back around the fire pit there'll be lots of of chatter and and maybe the odd toast and um and lots of reminiscing about someone we love very much and and like you said you know he was he you've really painted a trailblazer here and not only that but he was also an organ donor who I want to point out that you you and him uh Shirley I understand you guys had always talked about that and of course because of his cancer he couldn't donate uh his organs but he mm-hmm. he could donate some of his tissue to trillium and and his body to research so I think that that is I mean, there's just so much legacy in this man. So thank you, Shirley, Jenna, Ben. Thank you for sharing a bit of your your husband and your dad with us today. And I can only imagine the sorts of thoughts that people have swirling through their minds in terms of their own celebrations of life and how they want to go about doing things. So thank you. And again, my condolences to you and your family. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Of course. Of course. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Well, you're you're listening to the Evan Solomon show. I am Tamara Cherry. That is a conversation that I don't think that I will ever forget. There's a lot of conversations from my career that are stuck in my head and and this is thankfully I think going to be one of them because what a joy it is to to be allowed into somebody's heart during what is the toughest times, but also to be able to share some of those beautiful moments. So thank you for joining us in that. Uh, coming up after the break, we've got a couple segments left. Uh, the next one is is one that everybody is talking about this day, one, one that you will not want to miss. That's coming up right after the break. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Evan Solomon is away. Sitting in, here's Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, 
Former U.S. President Donald Trump has had his estate in Palm Beach, Florida, raided by FBI agents. So you might be thinking, oh, the U.S. Justice Department must have put out a news release informing the media this. No. Or maybe it was the FBI that, that informed the media of this. No. It was actually, shocker, Donald Trump himself, former U.S. President Donald Trump, put out the message yesterday that his estate in Palm Beach, Florida, was being raided by FBI agents and uh, describing uh, the FBI even breaking into a safe on his property as uh, persecution. Um, In a statement that he put out on Monday, Donald Trump said, after working and cooperating with the relevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. Well, here to break this down for us is Lawrence Douglas, the author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Lawrence is a professor of law at Amherst College in Massachusetts, and he joins us now. Lawrence, thanks for taking the time. Pleasure to be back with you. So, Lawrence, I was mentioning to you off air that when I heard that Trump's uh, home was being raided by FBI agents, I was thinking, oh, it it must have something to do with the uh, ongoing January 6th hearings. Nope. Tell us why the FBI was there. Yes. And and to be perfectly honest, uh, I had the same uh, reaction at first. Uh, So the FBI actually had a search warrant um, to look into Trump's mishandling of classified material. So when a president leaves office uh, by law, um, they're obligated to uh, hand over their materials to the um, National Archives uh, for safekeeping. You're obviously not permitted to remove any classified material. And uh, presumably, we don't know exactly what the FBI was searching for, but presumably it had to be something of real interest. And we do know that Earlier in the year, in January, uh, Trump had reluctantly handed over, I think, about 15 boxes of material that he had improperly removed from the White House and not sent over to the National Archives. And we know also that in the spring, uh, there were federal agents who visited Trump in Mar-a-Lago looking into his continued possession of materials that should have been turned over. But again, this has nothing to do with the January 6th uh, investigation. That said, I should mention that, you know, if they do find any information that's pertinent to that investigation, they could, of course, use it as well. So would they have had to to put that in the search warrant, though, that they, that they were also looking for evidence related to January 6th? Or is it basically just whatever they find? They no, they would, they would they not. Want. Yeah, they would not have to. That would not have been necessary. I think the search warrant would have simply been uh, looking for classified material that had been improperly. And I shouldn't say just improperly. I really should say illegally removed. That is, there is criminal law that prohibits the um, the removal or destruction of official government documents. And uh, that uh, law is really relevant because not only does it carry, you know, a standard kind of criminal penalty of a fine and possible imprisonment, but it also disqualifies a convicted person from holding a federal office in the future. So that's very relevant in as much. Absolutely. Yes. And as much as Trump is, you know, as far as we know, considering a run again in 2024. So, okay, so for anybody who might be thinking now, well, this is just the FBI or the Justice Department going on a fishing expedition to see what they could find in his home. Just bring break down for us, Lawrence Douglas, um, what the what steps need to have been taken by the FBI in order to even get this search warrant to begin with? 
Right. So a search warrant isn't something that the FBI can issue to itself. I mean, the FBI has to have, uh, you know, a sufficient quantum of evidence, a sufficient uh, amount of evidence in order to go to a federal judge uh, to ask for a warrant. And so this is not a kind of fishing expedition on the part of the FBI. Obviously, they had sufficient information that convinced the federal judge um, to uh, issue this uh, search warrant. And again, so the federal judge presumably had reason to believe that um, that uh, Trump had been concealing material or had removed material from the White House that should have been handed over by law. And that and that these materials might be in this specific location at his Palm Beach, Florida home. Yes, exactly. And, and presuming we know that uh, they also opened a safe uh, in search of that material. And again, the open question is what that material was. We just don't yes. know. But presumably it was of, um, you know, presumably it's not a bunch of trinkets that were handed to him by foreign leaders that he held on to. Um, it could have been classified material. Of course, mishandling of classified material is very serious. I mean, it's something that can put uh, the United States national security at risk if there hasn't been kind of uh, proper handling of this material. So, again, we, we don't know, but uh, we can have re- we have reason to assume that it was serious enough that the FBI would take this extraordinary step of getting a search warrant to a former president's house. So let's talk about this, the extraordinary nature of this, because this is uh, rather unprecedented. But I feel like a lot of people maybe who heard this weren't shocked by it. I wasn't really shocked that his home was being raided. I was surprised when I found out the reason for it. But because it's just been one thing after another. But just drill home for us. And and for anybody just joining us, we're speaking with Lawrence Douglas, the author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Lawrence, just drill, drill that point down for us how significant this is that the FBI has just raided the home of the former president of the United States. Well, I guess I would have to say it's kind of unprecedented. I can't really think of another circumstance in which uh, in which there's been anything uh, similar. Now, there have been in the in the past, there have been people who have been prosecuted under this federal law for uh, the uh, criminal removal of um, official government documents. Uh, but these have tended to be, uh, again, not not. Trivial people, people, let's say, in the State Department, uh, there was someone who had pled guilty, um, the former national security advisor to uh, President Clinton, Sandy Berger, uh, I believe he had uh, pled guilty for misdemeanor removal of uh, classified material. So the law has been used before. It's just never been used before against a president of the United States. And uh, and it does actually raise these questions about, you know, if he could be convicted of it, whether uh, the law actually could disqualify him, because they're even since all these kind of issues are in a sense, it's it's so unprecedented. There are arguments that people will make that the law that would bar a person from seeking to run for the presidency, that it would be unconstitutional to use that law to bar Trump from running again. So again, even though there's this federal law that says people are disqualified um, if they have been convicted under this law, there are other lawyers that already have made the argument that, no, that law, if applied to Trump running for the presidency, would be unconstitutional. All very strange stuff. And the beat beat goes on. Lawrence Douglas, you, you know, Donald Trump has known for months, as you mentioned, that he's been under investigation for the, these allegations. The Donald Trump that you know, that you wrote about in your book, 
would it surprise you if they actually found something in in his home that that he would have been silly enough to actually hold on to things that he wasn't supposed to be holding on to even having known for several months that that he was under investigation I mean that wouldn't that wouldn't uh, surprise me at all. I mean, I think one of the things that uh, we know about uh, Donald Trump is that he is an incredibly reckless person, and that he basically um, acts with impunity. And he has every reason, I suppose, to act with impunity because things that uh, should have uh, basically disabled him from having any sort of political viability in the future, uh, he's been able to dodge these things and been able to actually turn. Um, events and accusations that really should have been fatal to his political future, we know that he's almost been able to turn them to his uh, political advantage. So it wouldn't surprise me at all that um, that he would be reckless enough to have uh, kind of taken um, official documents and classified national security. But, but, to your, but to your point, that's probably the reason that he's the one that leaked the information out that the FBI were there, take control of the message. We have to end it there. Lawrence Douglas, author of Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. Uh, Lawrence Douglas, I have a feeling that we're going to be hearing from you again in the weeks or months to come. This is the story that just keeps on giving. Thanks for your time and have a great day. My pleasure. Thanks so much. I'm Tamara Cherry in for Evan Solomon. Coming up after the break, no Stanley Cup? Eh! No problem. There is a Montreal Canadiens fan who has created a life-size Stanley Cup. How? Tune in. We'll tell you after the break. Welcome back to the Evan Solomon Show. Today with special guest host Tamara Cherry on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, I can think of any number of people in this country, many of them concentrated in the greater Toronto area, who would love to get their hands on the Stanley Cup, who have waited decades and decades. Well, we are about to talk to one fan, not a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, but maybe he'll be in discussions with some after this uh, segment airs, a Montreal Canadiens fan. The Habs have not brought home the Stanley Cup since 1993, but there is a convincing replica sitting in a garage about 35 kilometers northwest of Montreal. On the line with us right now is hobbyist Sean Wilson. Sean, thank you so much for joining us with this Hi, remarkable story. Hi. Good, how are you? Good, thanks. Excited. So, so Sean, you're a woodworker by trade, I understand. Um, this is by trade, by hobby. That- by hobby, by right. trade. Okay, so so where did this idea to come up with a, a, a Montreal, or sorry, a Montreal, whoa, we haven't won the Stanley Cup yet. Okay, where did this idea come to create a replica Stanley Cup? Uh, where did it come um, from for you? So, well, during last season, basically once we made it past round one uh, and all the energy in Montreal, I kind of got excited and uh, wanted to put together something special. And, you know, I've always made 3D props, weapons, uh, you know, like uh, cosplay items, so... I thought, why not build a uh, Stanley Cup replica? Why not? Yeah, it's just something you could just like, you know, rattle off on a weekend, I'm sure. But I understand <laughs> that wasn't the case. Tell me about the uh, time. So you've, got, yeah. you've got a 3D printer, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. So all okay. this was done with one 3D printer. Uh, it took about two and a half weeks to print nonstop. So basically the printer didn't stop the entire time. Wow. Okay. So before yeah. we even get to that point, how many <laughs> hours did you spend in front of your computer designing Over this 100. thing? Over 100. Yeah, over 100. 
Yeah, there's also you, a lot spent, of were you day and night in there, or was this where you spent uh, no, not, like not day and man night. cave in your garage? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it wasn't it wasn't uh, 100 straight through, but it was uh, it was over about 100 uh, altogether. There was a lot of research. I mean, I had to research a lot of the cup itself, the history, the names, because uh, like my my replica cup has got over 2,300 names on it. Yeah, because some of the listeners might might have assumed, as I did before I, I watched the story and, and actually saw a picture of your replica cup, like, oh, maybe it doesn't have all the names. It couldn't have all the names. But you have thousands of names engraved alongside the dates that that these historical dates for for these teams, like just the, the attention to detail is absolutely remarkable. Uh, what where does this go from here? Because you have the Stanley Cup now sitting in your garage or wherever it might be. We know that the real Stanley Cup has been uh, stolen before. Do you worry about your right. Stanley Cup meeting the same fate? No, no, not right now. I mean, worst case, if it does, I'm like, I'll just pretty print another one. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess that the bulk of the work really comes down to that hundred yeah. hours that you spend. Okay, so so tell me, uh, tell me more about this cup. You've got thousands of names on there. When you look at the cup, are you uh, are you particularly inspired by any names in particular that you see? Is there well, any I mean, part of the cup that is particularly close to your heart? Well, I mean, you, you see some of the legends on there, like uh, Guy Lafleur and uh, Bellefaux, and like you know, there's a lot of names on there. But I mean. The history of the cup itself, because I've also went to the detail of adding all the errors that are on the uh, original cup. So there's been okay. some typos, uh, some names that have been crossed out. And uh, yeah, those are all on, on my duplicate. Wow. Okay. So tell me also about the structure of the cup, because I understand that the top bowl is one piece, but then all yeah. of the barrels actually screw together, similar to a real Stanley Cup. Tell me about that, that and why right. that attention to detail was important. So I basically, when I did design it, I figured, I mean, I know the, the Stanley Cup changes every season. So how do I keep my cup up to date if I want to be a fanatic to, you know, make sure that my cup's up to date? So I designed in a way that uh, every 13 years, uh, when they retire a band, I can do the same and add a new barrel to the bottom and keep it up to date with uh, the new teams. So it just means that every season I would have to 3D print a new barrel to keep up with the, uh, with the Stanley Cup winners. Incredible. Do you see yourself, you know, keeping this going every 13 years? Well, absolutely. I'll keep going until, uh, I guess, until, uh, I don't know, new technology comes out or if uh, people get sick of it, then I'll stop. But I mean, for now, uh, just the just the attention this past week has been a bit crazy uh, with social media and everything else. So I, I'm just going to keep going until uh, people get bored of it. Yeah. So tell me about that. There must there must be a lot of people who want to come and see the cup. Are you getting those sorts of requests? Uh, absolutely. Uh, hundreds of DMs and messages. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it was just supposed to be a prototype and I put it out there. My, my brother-in-law kind of posted on TikTok. It went kind of viral. Then the NHL themselves posted it. Then uh, Sports oh. Center, Hockey Night in Canada. Like it just kind of went crazy. And then next thing I know, I've got a, you know, there's the news coming and then you guys are calling it. It's, it's been incredible. Wow. Okay. I'm honored. This is amazing. So, so what are your plans for this cup then in, in the months and years to come? Is it going to stay in your garage or, or do you plan um, on putting it on display somewhere? I'm, I'm actually printing as we speak version two right now. Um, and obviously I'm going to look at legal recourse, but I mean, if there's a way that I can uh, put some cups into the hands of uh, hobbyists and fans, I'd love to do that too as well. So, I mean, uh, there could be a, there could be something there in the future. Have you had any Maple Leafs fans contacting you? Say, please send one our way. Uh, Leafs, yeah. I've, I've had quite a few actually asking if there's any way I'm going to make my way to Toronto and bring the cup with me. <laughs> okay. Well, you, you know, you just mentioned, you touched on a moment ago the legal aspect. We should point out that there is there there is some difference between your cup and the real cup. Tell us about that. That's right. 
So, I mean, I, I, I wanted to make sure that, like, the logos themselves wouldn't be identical to the Stanley Cup just because of those infringement laws. So I did change the bottom of the cup, which has the Hall of Fame uh, emblem, but it's slightly mm-hmm. changed. I mean, you can recognize it from a distance, but any fanatic will know there's a difference between my cup and the actual Stanley Cup. Okay. So what's your next project, Sean? Is it too early to be talking about this? No. I mean, I've gotten so many requests. I think it looks like I'm going to be making uh, trophies for all types of sports. I've been contacted really? for... Yeah, I've been contacted to make replicas for the NFL, for FIFA, for soccer, World Cup, Euro Cup. I mean, yeah, so we'll see where this goes. Is this I a new career for you, Sean? Uh, I hope so. I mean, that'd be great. Wow. Yeah, I mean, everybody everybody always dreams of turning their hobby into their into their Absolutely. career, right? So the people that are contacting you, are these like small sports clubs? Are these, you know, big, big organizations? Who's who's reaching out to you for these re- requests? So right now, it's a lot of local. I mean, there's also been uh, some companies in the, uh, in the greater Toronto area, uh, even uh, in my areas as well, like for like 3D printing, they're looking to maybe use the cup as a template and uh, kind of put it out there to, you know, maybe promote their companies as well. But uh, no, I've I've been getting some interesting uh, contacts, even some like event planners locally that want to rent the cup and use it for, you know, promotional purposes. But, you know, there again, I have to look at the uh, legal recourse. (laughs) Yes. Get it, Sean. Get it. Good for you. Okay. Well, if you want these calls to keep coming in, uh, is there a way for people to reach out to you if they're interested in this sort of thing? Um, Right now, the easiest way to to contact me would be uh, through Instagram. Uh, I'm pretty active. Uh, so it's uh, Wilson underscore workshop. That's my handle. Wilson underscore workshop on Instagram. I love That's this. Right. Sean Wilson, you know, the Habs <laughs> haven't had the cup for a while. So you just took it into your own Habs, your your own hands. Sorry for the slip there. And yeah, you made a Stanley Cup. Being, why not make one for myself? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The for this place. So, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited to see. Uh, you might have just like prompted me to use Instagram more regularly because I'm so excited to see what else you come up with. Uh, Sean Wilson, thank you so much for taking the time thank today. You, have Tamara. an awesome day. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the, the love support. Have a good day. Of Thanks. course. You too. What a wonderful way to end the show. I am just smiling from ear to ear and I'm not even a hockey fan. I like to rip my friends in Toronto about the Maple Leafs because, hey, who doesn't? But uh, that does it for the show today. I'm Tamara Cherry filling in for Evan Solomon this week. uh, I want to say thanks to Sam, a producer. Thanks to Chris, our our technical producer. And thanks to Tony on the call board today. We're going to have a lot more coming up for you guys tomorrow and the next day. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for listening.